Well, good morning to you all and a very happy Resurrection Sunday to you. This is obviously the, the special day we set aside for the remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. At the same time, there's really nothing special about this day because we aim to remember and worship him for his resurrection every day of our lives. This day by most is called Easter, and today especially it's marked by some awfully strange things, if you know what I'm talking about. Last time I checked, I couldn't find a magical bunny, colored eggs, baskets, and and candy in my Bible anywhere. Yet today, that is entirely what Easter is about. From TV commercials to the annual White House Easter egg roll, that's what Easter is today. It's marked by these traditions. Maybe if you're like me, you're wondering, how did we get from the resurrection of Jesus to the Easter egg and, and candy, colored eggs? Well, the answer, as with most traditions, is paganism. That's right. Pretty much every holiday tradition we have today has pagan origins. Whereas nearly every Christmas tradition around today came from pagan celebrations of winter solstice, nearly every Easter tradition we have comes from pagan celebrations of spring equinox, first day of spring. Anglo-Saxon pagans were known to have a fertility goddess symbolized by a rabbit or hare, which themselves were known as symbols of life in the springtime, which makes sense because rabbits do reproduce amazingly fast. Rabbits can be pregnant with the second litter while they're still pregnant with the first litter at the same time. It's a little extreme. It's like, you don't need to go that fast. As a side note, the rabbit's foot was originally kept as a good luck charm for fertility. Anyway, these pagan festivals were held around the first day of spring to celebrate the end of winter, the beginning of new life in the springtime. So what happened next? Well, the medieval church entered, the Catholic church, which by that time had become far different than the early Christian church. The Catholic church had become more about money, power, running this empire than anything else. And so to integrate, to assimilate these new pagans throughout the empire, they let them keep their traditions, their festivals, and they just kind of stamped the Christian name on it. Since the pagan spring festivals occurred at at around the same time as the church's celebration of the resurrection, these two traditions were merged. Which, I mean, how else? How else do you get from the resurrection of Jesus to rabbits? There's no other way. The church later regulated the date of this spring holiday, which the pagans didn't hold it on a Sunday. But the Catholic Church made it to be the first Sunday after the first full moon on or after the spring equinox. So translation, first day of summer, or rather first day of spring to this year was March 20th. The first full moon after that, March 27th. So when's Easter? Here we are. The first Sunday after that, March 31st. A little confusing, right? You'll you'll figure it out later. Now what about the egg? Where'd the egg come from? Well, the egg also was a pagan symbol for fertility and life for many animals. The egg marks the start of life. It really was the Germans, though, who gave us the modern idea of the Easter egg. They even brought it to America. Records show that some in the Pennsylvania Dutch country had Easter celebrations where children anticipated a visit from Osterhaus. I think that's how you pronounce it. I don't know German. The Easter bunny each spring. The children would lay out baskets or nests, and the Easter bunny would come and, and lay these chocolate or uh, rather colored eggs for them which is a really strange tradition because rabbits don't lay eggs. But it's not like any of this really makes a lot of sense. It wasn't until the late 1800s, really the 20th century, that these Easter traditions were commercialized and became widespread. Since kids didn't really want hard-boiled eggs, it became candy. And the rest is pretty much history. And leave it to America to really take to the next level, of course. Now in America, some 90 million chocolate Easter bunnies are made each year and some 16 billion jelly beans are made for Easter. Easter is now just behind Halloween as the second most candy-selling holiday, all-time candy-selling holiday. It's it's big business. And just as a funny side note, one survey I read stated that 76% of people choose to eat the ears first on a chocolate (laughs) Easter egg. I don't know. never really did that. Now, you have all this background. You know a little bit about how these modern traditions of Easter started. My goal today, though, is not really to give a a detailed evaluation and critique of these man-made traditions. It's not what we're going to do. Although I think that's needed. I'll save that for some time in the future. 
I'll say this briefly. Today, the, these traditions are mostly meaningless. Now, if you, if you paint an egg with your kid, it's not like you're worshiping an idol or a false god or a demon or something like that. Today, Easter is not so much an expression of paganism as it is really commercialism, which has its own dangers, of course. To be sure, there are serious dangers of allowing other traditions and symbols to invade and take over the real Easter, and that's a problem. We don't need to import or include any new meaning or significance to Easter. The resurrection of Jesus is far significant enough on its own. It doesn't need anything else. And so you as individuals, but especially the parents in the room, need to be very discerning and wise when it comes to these modern traditions. When are they distracting? When are they even just dangerous, misleading? If I were you, for example, if if you want to paint an egg with your kid, go ahead. But I would do it a week before or after Easter, and they ask, why are we doing this? I would just tell them, just for the fun of it. It has nothing to do with Easter, because it doesn't. Here's what really matters, that that you individually, and and especially your children, understand what this day is really about, which is worshiping Christ, the Savior who rose from the dead. Far be it from you as parents, if you teach your children, even indirectly, just by your actions, that Easter is about a bunny and some eggs and some candy and some baskets. And far be it from you as Christians, if you let traditions eclipse the truth and cause you to forget Christ, what what the day is actually about. If that's happened, you can correct things and and just get back on track by remembering what this day is truly for, remembering Christ. Well, I can say a lot more about this, but with our limited time, I don't really want to delve too much further into a negative portrayal of error, but rather a positive portrayal of the truth, because after all, the truth is so much more valuable, worthwhile, compelling to look at. And I don't want us to get distracted ourselves when it comes to what this day is about. Every Christmas, preachers talk about the birth of Christ and the incarnation of Christ. And then every Easter, they talk about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. And rightly so. That makes sense. So where in the Bible did we go this Easter morning to to probe the depths of the resurrection? There are many places we could turn. But here's what I want to do this morning. We We actually have a very unique opportunity today only. I want you to take your Bibles and open them to 1 Peter. 1 Peter. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the pew in front. And if you're not familiar, 1 Peter is near the end of the New Testament. Open to the book of 1 Peter. Now, if you've been with us for long, you know that last Sunday we just finished going through the entire book of 1 Peter, verse by verse. I didn't plan it that way to end on the Sunday before Easter. It just happened. Now, in case you're curious, for those who have been with us for the long haul, it took us 34 sermons to get through these five chapters of 1 Peter, which is about three verses a sermon, which is pretty good, pretty good pace for me. Anyway, last Sunday, we ended this letter from Peter to the churches of Asia Minor, We reflected back on some of the major themes found in this letter. Themes of suffering and of glory and of grace. And it's it's so helpful every now and then just take a step back and look at scripture from 40,000 feet and just get that big picture. And we did that last week as we finished the letter. So we're we're done with 1 Peter. We're going to be moving on next Sunday. But before we go, we still have it fresh in our minds. I figured we could benefit from this letter one more time. I'm not sure if you if you picked up on it. It's hard to see when you're going through three verses at a time. But there's another just massive theme in 1 Peter. Really, I wouldn't even call it a theme exactly. It's 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 more like the backdrop. You know, paintings can have themes or motifs, things that just keep popping up. This this is really the canvas of 1 Peter. It's just what he's writing on and and that canvas would be Christ. And Christ himself is, is the real focus of this letter. And the topic of Jesus in 1 Peter, it's so huge, it actually eclipses the themes of suffering, glory, and grace that we looked at last week. And Peter talks about Jesus in 31 verses in this letter, which is nearly one in three, which that's just huge. And although you, you may not have picked up on this, it's amazing as to how much of Christ's life 
and work is recorded in First Peter. When you want to learn about Jesus, where, where do you go? Where do you turn your Bible? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the four Gospels, right? You, you could add First Peter to that list. Because he's, he's everywhere. We learn so much about him in First Peter. His life, his death, his resurrection, his return, and more. So given the fact that we just finished studying this letter, there's not going to be any better Easter than today and for us to do a special, a special message on Jesus in First Peter. So that's what we're going to do this morning. You could say that this is the gospel of First Peter. It's the good news of Jesus Christ as found in First Peter. So I'm going to keep things very simple by way of outline. I just want us to find three milestones in the ministry of Christ from First Peter. That's pretty much it. Three milestones in the ministry of Christ from First Peter. You're not going to have to turn anywhere else in your Bible. It'll be nice and easy for you this morning. Just First Peter. But then we'll look at several verses there. Specifically, we'll be focusing in on the death of Christ, the resurrection of Christ, and the return of Christ, all from First Peter. So let's get into it. The first milestone in the ministry of Christ is his death, the death of Christ. Number one, the death of Christ. We'll save the birth of Christ for Christmas. Just jump straight to his, his suffering and his death, which is, after all, the purpose for which he came. We are born, and then we die. Jesus was born in order to die. God the Son did not come to earth for some sightseeing. This was not a divine vacation. He was not curious, you know, what do, what do flowers smell like? What's it like to walk on dirt? He was not curious. He came for a purpose. And what does our first passage say? Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 20. Speaking of Christ, For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. There was the divine son in triune glory before the world even existed, and he came now, though, why? For the fun of it? He came for you, for the sake of you. You may be thinking, wait, wait a second, why? Why did Jesus come for us? I wasn't aware that I needed him. But that right there, if you see that, that's the great problem of so many people. So many people around the world do not follow Christ as Savior and Lord because they, they just have no clue how much they need him. Pretend you go to the doctor. You get a checkup, not feeling too well. You get the results, and you are perfectly healthy. You're perfectly healthy. Nothing wrong with you. Before you leave, though, the doctor, he wants to sell you the special new drug that cures leukemia which is a cancer of the blood. It's a, it's a wonder drug. It's a brand new wonder drug. costs an arm and a leg, but it really works. It's a perfect, true cure. cures leukemia. It's amazing. But you think to yourself, well, how would I want to do that? Why would I want to buy that? I, don't, I can't afford that, and I don't need that. I'm fine. So you, you leave. You walk away. The next day, pretend your only child goes into the doctor, a little five-year-old girl. And what do you know? The test results come back, and she has leukemia. What are you going to do then? You're going to run back to your doctor, and you're just going to pray he still has that new wonder drug. Then you're going to sell your house if you have to, to buy it, because now you are desperate for what he has. You're desperate. Of course, this isn't real, but if you can just imagine this for a moment, can you sense the desperation of that parent to get that? See, there there are some people in this world, a few, who have discovered, not that they have leukemia, but something far worse. It comes with a 100% mortality rate. It has no human cure. It leads to death, eternal death. It's called sin. But though there's no human cure, there is a divine cure, and there is one who has the cure, or rather, who is the cure. And so these people, they're desperate for him. You know, the problem is sin. The cure, if you want to call it that, is Christ. It's Jesus himself. He is the divine cure. He's the cure for sin. And we call these people who are desperate for him, we call them Christians. They're, they're desperate for what he has. 
Leukemia, actually, it's not a bad illustration for the sin problem because sin, it's like a disease of your spiritual blood. Blood in scripture is, is equated with life. It's the life force. Rich meaning and significance is attached to blood, especially in, in connection to forgiveness for sins. In the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, for example, atonement for sins was made through what? The shedding of blood of an animal. Now you ask, well, how, how does that work? How does killing that lamb over there produce my forgiveness? Like, how, how does that work? Well, there, there's nothing magical about the animal's blood. It's just that God reckons it as a life for life. It's called substitution. That's the word, substitution. So you have to understand, God is perfectly holy. That there's, he can't tolerate sin in his presence in, in the least, not not even one. That's a problem for us because all humans are big-time sinners. And we are not holy by any stretch of the imagination. Furthermore, God is perfectly just, which means he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Exodus 34, verse 7. He has to punish. But at the same time, the Bible describes God as being loving and compassionate and forgiving. So wait a second. Those seem like contradictory attributes of God. Like, which one is it? Is he going to judge us for our sins, or is he going to forgive us? Like, which one wins? Well, the answer is both. And and how is that possible? Well, the answer to that is substitution. Substitution. In the Old Testament, God, by choice, by design, made provision for the people in the form of a substitute Sacrifice, one who would pay the penalty for the sin while the sinner himself was forgiven. You do the crime, someone else does the time. That doesn't sound fair. It's not fair. That is not fair. But you don't want God to be fair. If God were being purely fair, everyone on earth would go to hell. No one would be saved. You want God to be gracious. And this is gracious. In the Old Testament, this substitute sacrifice consisted of animals in their sacrificial system. But these animal sacrifices by design, they were insufficient. The blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. They could only cover sin like a blanket. They could sweep it under the rug. They couldn't actually pay for it. Furthermore, there's not even enough animals in the world to cover the, the sins of man. Something more was needed. A better substitute sacrifice was needed. A perfect substitute sacrifice was needed. And Jesus, God the Son incarnate, he is that perfect substitute sacrifice. And now you understand 1 Peter 1.20 that Jesus came for the sake of you to, to take your place. He came to take your place. As John the Baptist announced of Jesus when his ministry began, Behold, the Lamb of God, who who doesn't cover, who takes away the sins of the world. And Peter has more to say about this Lamb of God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and go backwards to verse 18. 1 Peter 1.18, he says, Know that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver, or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Here Christ redeemed you. He purchased you. He bought you from the the slave market of sin. He redeemed your soul. This is what God did for you in love. He sent Jesus to, to bear the burden of sin, to pay the penalty for sin, to redeem you from judgment and condemnation and hell itself. Being fully human, he was able to be a substitute for men, for humans. Being fully God, he was able to actually pay for sins, not just cover them, but to pay for them, take them away. And then being unblemished and spotless, his life was a a worthy sacrifice. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's turn the page. As verse 21 says, this Jesus, he suffered for you. Verse 22, he committed no sin. 
nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, he did not revile in return or threaten in return. He just trusted God, and then he went to the cross. But wait, you may think, you know, a lot of people died on crosses back then. Did you know that? It's true. The Romans crucified thousands of people. Remember Spartacus? After his slave rebellion failed, the Romans crucified 6,000 of Spartacus's men along the Appian Way from modern-day Naples to Rome. So just to give you a picture, that's about a 100-mile stretch of road. And just, just picture people crucified as far as the eye can see for 100 miles. Lots of people were crucified. So what's so special about Jesus? He was another guy crucified. Well, not so much. Verse 24. It's what he did on that cross that is special. Verse 24, 1 Peter chapter 2. And he, oh, by the way, notice this is the clear language of substitution as I read this verse. He for us. Substitution. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body. Our sins, his body, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds, you were healed. This is what Jesus did for us. He he was our perfect substitute sacrifice. He died the death that you deserved and bearing the wrath of God for sin. Notice, Jesus didn't die so that you could go on sin and guilt-free. You could enjoy your sin and rebellion against God without penalty. He died to redeem you from that way of life, that you would be dead to sin, alive to righteousness. This is the spiritual healing that the cross brings. Jesus shed his blood to cure your blood disease. It, it, it's in your spiritual blood, sin is. It, it's like a blood disease. It courses through you. It's part of you. It brings death twice. You're going to die twice because of sin. But you don't have to die twice. The second death, separation from God, judgment, hell, condemnation. Jesus died to redeem you from that. And though you may die the first time, he will bring you to new life, escaping the second death. Finish this off. Look at 1 Peter 3, verse 18. Chapter 3, verse 18. He says, For Christ also died for sins, once for all. The just for the unjust. That's us, by the way. So that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. And this is what he did through that death. He brought us to God, reconciled us. To God, made peace with God. Something you didn't deserve. You do not deserve this. But this is what he did for us. And it's my hope that, that all people, they not that they they come to, to know their need, or rather they come to know Christ first, but they come to know their need for Christ first. Because that must happen first. My prayer is that God convicts your soul of the, the overwhelming flood of guilt that you have before him, of the certain judgment coming your way because of your sins, and the utterly helpless position you are in to do anything about it. You can't do anything. And If that's you, if you get that, what's going to happen? You're going to be desperate. You're going to be desperate for what Jesus did for you, and then you'll run to him. How do you know this cure works, though, that, that Jesus offers? He provides us forgiveness. How do you know you're really going to be forgiven, saved? How, how can you trust him? Well, this Jesus was not only put to death in the flesh, as verse 18 says, he was made alive in the spirit. This brings us to our second milestone in the ministry of Christ for us, the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection, our second, his second milestone, that rather we could say. The resurrection of Christ. After Jesus rose from the dead, the Holy Spirit came down at Pentecost. Peter changed. Peter, who writes this letter, he changed at that point. 
No longer was he that, that coward hiding away in the upper room, scared to, to talk. Rather, he's ready now to take a stand for Jesus, and he preaches Jesus to the same people who killed him 50 days before. And what does he say to them? What does he preach in that first sermon to those people, to the Jews who killed Christ? He preaches the resurrection. This is all from Acts 2, but don't turn there, because we're sticking with 1 Peter, but I will summarize for you. Now he tells these Jews, look, you knew Jesus. You knew who he was. You saw the signs and wonders. You knew that he was from God. But you still killed him. You nailed him to that cross. He says, but don't worry. It's not like you were thwarting God's plan. This was part of God's plan. But you don't have any excuse for what you did. Nevertheless, he tells them God raised Jesus up again because that was also part of the plan. Death could not hold him in its power. Peter continues preaching the resurrection of Christ to these Jews. And then what is his conclusion? What's his last word? If you look at verse 26 there, he says that in light of the resurrection to these Jews, this is an Acts, by the way, he says, know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What's he saying? Peter's explaining, in part, the significance of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, he says, know for certain that Jesus is Lord. He's the divine, sovereign king to whom every knee will bow. He's Lord. He's the master and ruler over all things, including death itself. Everything and everyone will bow to him, whether they want to or not, sooner or later. His signs and wonders were amazing, but, but nothing surpasses his resurrection as showcasing his, his deity. He rose from the dead to eternal life and never to die again. Also because of the resurrection, know for certain that Jesus is Christ, he says. Christ is not his last name. It's a title. It means the anointed one. It's a messianic title. And Jesus was that Messiah, the Savior, the one and only one who could save his people from their sins. And as the Christ, who is also the Lord, he is a Savior you can trust. He's a Savior who can actually save you. He's a Savior who can give true hope. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, there'd be no hope. You would have no hope. Life would be hopeless. There'd be no hope of glory, no hope of escaping that second death. It's like a medical cure that doesn't work. Just hopeless. Your child has leukemia. You run to the doctor. You sell your house. You buy that miracle cure, and it doesn't work. Nothing happens. Your child is still dying. I mean, how hopeless, how utterly futile and hopeless that would be. Last year, a man in the UK was dying of, of lung cancer. He had a 10% survival chance. But he found a clinic in Germany that was promising a cure. The doctor at this clinic had actually been banned from practicing medicine in his native Italy and actually convicted of medical fraud. But this guy still went to this clinic because he was just hoping for a cure. Well, after he moved to Germany to undergo this treatment, he thought he was getting a little bit better. But he was just being optimistic. Not long after, he, he died. And it turns out his special therapy consisted of doses of vitamin C and sodium bicarbonate. That's baking soda. Vitamin C and baking soda. So instead of spending his last days peacefully with his family back home, he suffered alone and died under the guise of a false cure. That is hopeless. That's so utterly hopeless. How do you know that the cure for sin that Jesus offers is not like this? How do you know it's any different? How do you know it works? The answer, time and time again, that the New Testament points to, it's not the cross. It's the resurrection. The resurrection is how you know. It works. Look, who else would you trust for the cure of second death than the one who has power over life and death? Who else are you going to go to? What a complete fraud and failure Jesus would have been otherwise. He promised eternal life. That only comes one way, by the way, by the abolishing of death itself 
But if death held victory over him, he'd be a complete phony. There's no hope in that. But as Peter preached, death could not hold him. Jesus rose victoriously over death itself. And as Peter explains in 1 Peter, this is why we have a real hope. He calls it a living hope. You don't just have hope. You have a living hope. And you don't have a living hope because Jesus died. You have a living hope because Jesus lives. That's why your hope is living. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. All the way back to the beginning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Notice how he starts this off. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If Jesus stayed dead, your hope would be dead. But he is risen. Look at verse 20, again, of First Peter. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Understand, understand that in Scripture, everything Jesus accomplished in his death, it's joined at the hip with the resurrection. You know, justification, forgiveness, propitiation, redemption, reconciliation, adoption, atonement, salvation. If he didn't rise, none of those happened. But he did rise, and this is what saves you, as Peter says in chapter 3, verse 21, an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus died, he rose, he ascended. That's how Peter ends chapter 3, by the way. That's where he is now, ascended in heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father. But this is not the end, because what goes up must come down. And this leads us to the last milestone in the ministry of Christ. After reflecting on the resurrection, we have ahead of us this third milestone, the return of Christ. Amen. The return of Christ. Still all from First Peter. I mentioned that we have a hope, uh, the hope of glory, because Jesus died and rose. But, but where is it? Where's our hope? Where, where's this glory? Where's this eternal life that he promised? It is with Jesus, and he will return with it for us. When Christ returns, his second coming will not be like his first, because he will come with glory, not veiled. For some people, this will be a terror. Just imagine imagine if the sun started moving closer to the earth quickly. It would not be long before the heat just consumed all life. There's no escape from that. Where are you going to run? There's no hiding place from that. You will be consumed. There's no hope. And this is what it will be like when Christ returns in glory for those who have rejected him. You, you can't even stare into the sun for five seconds. And Christ will return in glory that you can't even look at. The lost will not be able to stand for a millisecond in the presence of that glory. They will be consumed and, and judged. For others, though, for believers, Christ's return will not be a terror because he's not coming to consume us with his glory. He comes to share it with us. This is what Peter calls again and again our imperishable inheritance. We get to be with God. We get to bask in his glory. We get to enjoy him forever, free from sin, free from its penalties, enjoying life under the Son of God. This hope and this glory comes with Christ's return Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. He says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is how Peter often speaks of the return of Christ, his revelation, his revealing, when he will be seen by all. And when he comes, he's going to come with grace, divine favor. He's going to come with God's favor towards you for your faith. And that gives us hope and glory. 
This hope of his return helps us endure life's difficulties now, for we still live in the realm of sin and death now. Peter often motivates us to endure life's difficulties by reminding us of that return, that revelation. For example, turn to 1 Peter chapter 4 and look at verse 12. There are several examples of this, but 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, although as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. See, we can rejoice now, even in suffering, because our faith is being tested and proved. And we can rejoice later, even more so, because our faith will just give way to glory. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. In the past, Jesus died for us. In the present, he lives for us. And in the future, he will return for us. This very much is the gospel of Jesus Christ in 1 Peter. It's the good news of his life, death, resurrection, return in 1 Peter. Well, where, where do we go from here? What, what's next? It, it's not quite the end. Because the good news, the gospel, always demands a response. God takes this message, the gospel, and he uses it to change people, to give them grace, to give them this salvation that Jesus purchased. And this work of God, it's called the new birth. And so as a bonus now, bonus material, I want to talk to you about the new birth still from 1 Peter. We're going to stick to 1 Peter. You know, the salvation that Jesus purchased, who's it for, after all? Who gets it? Those who have been born again in Christ. So as a bonus, so a point number four, the new birth in 1 Peter. The new birth in 1 Peter. If you remember, this idea of the new birth came from Jesus way back in John chapter 3. He was telling Nicodemus that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Literally born from above is what he says. How do you do this? How do you make yourself born again? You can't. That's the whole point. You can't do this. There's nothing you can do to make this happen. Tell me, what, what role did you play in your first birth? None. What role do you think you're going to play in your second birth? None. Rather, this is something God does through the Spirit, bringing people to life. The disciples understood that God's standard of salvation is just so high, it's just so beyond our reach, we can't even come close. So they cried out to him, Lord, who can be saved? Remember what he said? He said, with men, it's impossible. It's impossible. If it's up to you, not possible. But he said, obviously not having fear, with God, all things are possible. God can do this. Salvation for people is impossible. You have a better chance of jumping back into your mom's womb and being born a second time than you do of affecting your real second birth in Christ. But God can do this, and he does. Right after talking about God's choosing of us, what does Peter say? Go back once again to chapter 1, verse 3. I know we just were there. But chapter 1, verse 3. It said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And get this. Who according to his great mercy has caused us. Has caused us to be born again. To a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why did God do this? Because of his mercy. And what's he doing? He's causing us to be born again. There's no other way to be saved. When you come alive a second time, saved from spiritual death, your hope comes alive. That's why you have a living hope here. A living hope of a future free from the sin and death of this world. 
And this all comes from a living Jesus, a resurrected Savior. Look down at chapter 1, verse 23. He says, For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. Here Peter's telling us that the Word of God, it's the means, it's the mechanism through which God does this, through which he causes people to be born again. The Word of God here, it's not actually the Bible, per se. As if you look at verse 25, it's really the preached Word, a.k.a. the Gospel. This is the Gospel, the Word of God. The Gospel, it's like a sword. And anyone it touches, they just instantly die and then come back to life. The Gospel brings an end to your old self and it brings to life your new self, born again. You may be thinking, okay, I, I, get, I think I get that. But still, you know, seriously, what do I have to do to make this happen to me? Like, how do I get this for me? If you're wondering that, you're still not getting it because the answer is still nothing. There's nothing you can do. You can't buy this. You can't earn it. You try and be a good person all you want. That's what most people do. That's what religion is. But it's just not nearly enough. Look, go to church, read the Bible, call yourself a Christian. It doesn't matter. Those things don't make you born again. They don't save you. So are, are we just helpless? Are, are we just at God's mercy here? Exactly. But at the same time, this is not the last word. For God has bound himself up in a promise. He didn't have to, but he chose to. He promised that if anyone comes to him desperately, falling at his feet, acknowledging the vast weight of their sin before him, confessing their inability to stand righteously in his presence even for a second, just crying out to him for mercy, for grace, for salvation, that he's going to do what? What's he promised? He will hear them. He says he will by no means cast them out. He will listen. This is what God himself has promised to do. And these are the people who, who do this, who cry out to him. These are the people whom God kills, their old selves, and then brings to life again. He causes them to be born again. This is why, although you cannot earn or buy or affect your own salvation, the Bible still tells you to do what? To believe. This is why. Believe in Jesus. Believe in God. Cry out to him. Hopefully it's painfully obvious to you that this belief, it's no mere intellectual belief like, oh yeah, I know Jesus. Not what we're talking about here. This is a cry of desperation. You believe that he is Lord in Christ. You believe that he is God come down. You believe you really do have an incurable sin problem. You believe that Jesus can cure that problem. You believe he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, and you believe that he can save you. So you cry out to him for mercy. This is what the Bible calls belief, faith. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. How does he describe our relationship with the Lord? And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Amen. Understand, even the demons believe in Jesus, but they're not rejoicing over him. Why not? Because they're not trusting him for their souls. Do you? Romans 10.9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So this is it. This is how the new birth works. This is how God brings it about. It's through this trust in Jesus. Those who call out to him, he hears, he brings to life. We're still not quite done. Not quite done. Because I know still a lot of people ask, okay, well, how do you know that you've been saved? How do you know you've been born again? Are you asking yourself that this morning? Have you been born anew? 
I'll say this. It's unmistakable. It's unmistakable. The new birth is not some subtle thing. Pretend I showed you a woman, nine months pregnant, ready to burst. A simple question for you. And just by looking at this mom, how do you know that her baby has been born? It's pretty obvious. And she no longer looks like she's got a basketball on her stomach. Sorry, moms, but, you know, it's true. But put simply, it's unmistakable. It's unmistakable. And guess what? The second birth, equally unmistakable. How can you tell? What are the signs? Well, do you remember what Jesus said in 1 Peter 2.24, which we read earlier? Jesus died for our sins so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. You see, the new birth comes with a new life. Your life changes. Your attitude changes. Your actions, everything changes. By no means do you become perfect, no. But you're in the race now. You're you're in the race. You're following the Lord. You're living for him. You're running to Christ. You love him. Your life, his. You may stumble. You may veer off course. But sin now convicts you. It grieves you. So you turn and you get back to following him. Not so for the unregenerate. They live enslaved to sin. It's still their master. They have no regard for truly honoring God in their life. No, no love, no passion, no desperation for the Lord. Not desperate for what he brings. Translation, it's obvious. They've not been born again. Do, do they genuinely grieve over and hate their sin? Uh, do they desperately need and trust God? Of course not. They're still dead in their sins. They're dead. They're spiritually dead. Many people, though, they, they still call themselves Christians. Some even go to church, especially on Christmas and Easter. But it really doesn't matter what you call yourself. Look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. He says, Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose. He's talking about us now. Because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for the lust of men, but for the will of God. Here's a perfect sign of the new birth. What do you live for? Not are you perfect, but what are you living for? Why are you alive? What what excites you? Where's your passion in this life? Are you living for this world, stuff, the, the lust of the flesh. Or are you living for, what does he say? The will of God. You live for God now. Some people call themselves Christians, but they, they still live for and in the lust of the flesh. Translation, it's obvious. They've not been born again. For others, for those who have been born again by God, look, by no means are, are they perfect or sinless, that they still sin. But they're different. They're alive. They're, they're in the struggle now. They're fighting against sin because they, they love God now. They're, they love his will. They're, they're pursuing him. And sin takes them backwards. They don't want to go backwards anymore. They're now living for God and his will. When they fall into sin, they repent. They return to the Lord. They submit to his will. They press on because they love him because they're desperate for what he has, for what he offers, for what he's given to them. Translation, it's obvious. They've been born again. They are new. So this morning, are you new? Have you been born again? Is there anything else that matters? Don't be deceived into thinking, I just need to try harder. I just need to do more. I need to read my Bible more, go to church more. I just need to do better. That's not the answer. That's wrong. You need a new heart, a new life, a new birth. Once a baby is born, he's going to start breathing on his own. He's going to eat on his own. He's going to grow on his own. It's just natural. It happens. That's what happens to living babies. And likewise, once you're alive spiritually, you're going to grow. You're going to mature. You're going to eat the word. You're going to develop. But first things first, you have to come alive. If you're here this morning, and, and maybe you know, you're still dead. There's hope for you, but that window is closing. And it could be gone 
tomorrow. What should you do? There's nothing you can do. Nothing you can do about that. But if you're desperate, cry out. God will hear you. He even says that today is the day of salvation. Today. He can make you alive right now. If you go to Christ, place your hope and your trust in Him and cry out, He will save you. He will bring you to life. To those who sit here alive, well, a happy Resurrection Sunday. And we live because He lives. And remember this, not just once a year, every day, remember Remember, rejoice, worship, live, and then enjoy his perfect peace, which comes even now. And let's go ahead and end the way we ended last week with Peter's final words, chapter 5, verse 14. He finishes it off himself by saying, Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Our precious God and Savior, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do exalt your name right now. We lift you up for our salvation, for for this plan, for what you have done for us through the Savior. The Son whom you foreknew before the foundation of the world, you sent to appear in these last times for us, to be our substitute, to die in our place. And Lord, we confess we need that. We are glad, though grieved by our sin, glad that he died. For it is our only hope. There is no other hope in this life of making it into the next. We thank you for what you've done for us. We, we confess our total inability and lack uh, to stand before you. We confess our faith and our hope and our trust in what Jesus did on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, proving that he is the one who holds the keys to life and death. We exalt you now. And Lord, we can only say that we long for your return. Our hope is alive and it will be changed into glory when you come back. We look forward to that. And we can only live for you now. Help us to do that as a final step. It's because we love you and are so uh, changed by you. We've been made new. And so we pursue you now. Give us grace to do so. I pray for any any here, Lord, who have not been made new, that you would open their hearts, you would convict them of sin, show them their great need for you, humble them, there's only one way and make them cry out that then you would change them and draw them to your son it's all for your grace it's all by your grace uh, rather for your glory lord so in your name we, we lift up and praise amen